Arthur Balper and the team of Brass from Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, the managing editor of Fangraphs, making his weekly Monday appearance. His weekly Monday appearance, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. The listener may well be aware that a number of transactions, a number of important transactions, have occurred in baseball over the last week. The listener may be less aware, but may be slightly cognizant of the fact that Jeff Sullivan, uh, one of the full-time writers of Fangraphs, has been absent from Fangraphs over the past week, and that has put much of the work regarding these transactions right into the lap of Dave Cameron, managing editor. No one, in fact, is more aware of the unusual number of transactions that have taken place over the course of the last week. No one is more aware of them than Dave Cameron, the man with whom I had a conversation for the benefit of this podcast. And what follows... And what follows, David Cameron discusses some of those transactions, but not all, of them. not all of them. You know why? Because there are too many. But he discusses some of them. But not all of them, but uh, many of them. And that's it. That's all there is to say, except for the fact that it is a damn fine episode. One of the finest. There are over 400 episodes of Fangraphs Audio. This is definitely probably top uh, the 25th percentile. or the, I mean, the, in terms of good, the 75th percentile in terms of quality is what I mean to say. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. We're all going to enjoy it. Let's enjoy it together. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Features managing editor Dave Cameron. And it begins right now. Carson. Hi, Dave Cameron. Hey. Hey, what's up, boss? Not much. How are you? I'm all right. You feeling good? I'm a little under the weather, so if there's a little uh, scratch in my throat this week, that's why. Uh, it just makes you sound um, even more masculine than usual. Uh, that's not possible. <laughs> that's true. You do, uh, um, from corners far and wide, people shout out, Dave Cameron, he's a very picture of, man- of manliness. That's what Yeah, I think uh, I have often referred to as uh, macho. Yeah, this is right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, I have a dictionary right here, yeah. uh, and I've just looked up the word macho in it. Yeah. Uh, and look, lo and behold, there's a picture of you right there. I am not surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably because Fangraphs put out that dictionary. Most yeah, that's likely. true. Yeah. yeah, yeah, or certainly altered it. I mean, Al- David yeah. Alvin's pretty powerful. I think people are already aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, uh, so a lot of movement the last week, Dave Cameron. You know, annoyingly so, yeah. Yes, you've gotten to cover a lot of yourself because Jeff Sullivan has to uh, what, go climb a mountain, literally climb a mountain. Stupid volcano traveler. Yeah. He 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 was emailed me in like September, or October, and said he wanted to take like a nice long vacation and unplug and get away. And we like tried to figure out like the best time for you know him to disappear for a couple of weeks. And we were thinking, you know, usually the period in November. Like around Thanksgiving or leading up to Thanksgiving, there's not a lot of activity because it's close enough to the winter meetings that teams decide, you know, we'll just wait until we get to Orlando and we'll figure everything out there. They set the stage for stuff. Maybe there's a trade here, one free agent comes off the board or something, but it's not usually that busy. So we, we let Sullivan take two weeks off, and then since he left, every move in the history of baseball has happened. <laughs> it, has been, it has been an active period, uh, certainly, and... Um I mean, yeah, it's not not just one sort of uh, movement either. We've seen uh, – we saw a trade, of course, that sent uh, 
uh, well, two huge trades, really. Uh, I mean, the Kinsler for Fielder trade and the and the Borges for Freeze trade, which I, uh, the latter one maybe is not huge, but it's uh, it's sort of interesting and perhaps emblematic of uh, where those organizations are going or where their priorities lie. Yeah, I mean, I think that trade is bigger in sabermetric circles because Peter Burgess is one of us, kind of. I mean, he's the kind of guy that we champion as a, you know, an undervalued asset, a really good player, even though, you know, I think generally speaking, he's talked about as a fourth outfielder in the mainstream. I think a lot of people, uh, if you don't read fan graphs or if you don't uh, apply our lines of thinking to baseball players, think that the Cardinals traded for a, you know, a backup, a, a defensive specialist, uh, a guy who's going to, you know, replace John Jay in the seventh inning and, and steal some bases as a pitch runner when, you know, we think that they just got, you know, 90% of Jacoby Ellsbury. So there's a huge gap in, in the difference of opinion on guys like Burgess. So that trade played a lot bigger on Fangrass than it did probably on ESPN or, uh, you know, mm-hmm. CBS or something. Uh, so for, for us, I think there were two big trades last week. For most of baseball, probably just the one. Yeah, well, okay, so... And with regard to that freeze Burgess trade, it seems like um, – and th- for people maybe who don't follow the sport um, as closely uh, – uh, Listen to the Fangraphs podcast. Yeah, right. So everyone. They, yeah. That would be everyone. But besides – people who don't follow the, wow. the game as closely but maybe just watch the World Series, they might be under the impression that David Freeze is one of the top players uh, in all of baseball. Well, if they just watched the 2011 World Series, he was kind of terrible this postseason. He was kind of oh, terrible yeah. all season. I mean, I think, you know, if you watch David Freese this year, he, he didn't look very good. And I think it's instructive to keep in mind that the 2011 David Freese that kind of came out of nowhere, a little unexpected. I mean, the Cardinals got him as basically a, a fringe prospect uh, when they traded away Jim Edmonds. Uh, you know, he wasn't supposed to be a star, and then he turned into a pretty good player out of nowhere. Now he's seemingly reverted back into being... Not a very good player. The question is, you know, which is which of these is real? Like the track record up until a couple of years ago where he didn't look like a great player and then this last year where he didn't look like a great player or that couple of year window in between where he actually hit the ball pretty well at the major league level and played a reasonable third base. Right. Okay. So this year, I mean, let's, uh, with regard to Freeze, and he is sort of an interesting player and because there are sort of, uh, there are probably a number of opinions about him. Um, he was worth four wins last year, which is very good. Um, uh, by last year, you mean 2012. 2012, right. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Uh, this most recent year, uh, he was a lot closer to zero. Uh, of course, a lot of that uh, comes from his uh, rather poor um, defensive metrics. Yeah, but his offense turn, took a downwards turn, too. I mean, it was a it was a bad year for David Freese across the board. Right. But, so, yes, it was certainly relative to his, pre- his previously established major league levels. It wasn't great. Still, league average batter at third base if you say that, you say, well, this is not, that's not nothing. It's not nothing, but I think, you know, uh, his defensive range has always been a little bit of a question mark. He was never considered a great athlete. Uh, he was playing through a back injury last year, so that maybe there's questions about perhaps, uh, that's what limited his ability to move and field baseballs, and if his back heals next year, perhaps he'll go back to being a, you know, slightly above average hitter who plays average defensive third base. Uh, but I think there's also reason to believe that, you know, David Freese is uh, going to be 31 next year. Uh, his his body has never been the most durable thing. Like we mentioned, he's not a great athlete. He wasn't a top prospect. There are reasons to think that, you know, perhaps this is just David Freese getting worse. Yeah. I like um, the, the the structure of your sentence was there is there is reason to believe that, <laughs> that David Freese is going to turn 31. 
Yes, um, right. Well, uh, there's reason to believe that. Mostly, I think that uh, I can make a pretty good case that David Reese is going to turn 31. I think you can make an excellent case. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very good. Mostly having to do with his birth date, I think, right? Yeah, I think uh, birth certificates, uh, you know, cake. <laughs> there's, there are reasons we could prove. <laughs> so so the thing with Peter Burgess, right, is um, he, when he plays, he's been quite valuable basically ever since he started playing. Yes, he's been a, he's averaged about four war per 600 plate appearances in his major league career. Right. And, uh, you say, well, this is a very good player because, um, not many, not many players do that. The, uh, the difficulty, of course, with Burgess is that he is not on the field a lot. I think he's, he's recorded fewer than 400 plate appearances over the last two years. Fewer than 200. <laughs> right, right, sorry, 400 combined, I should say. Yeah, yeah right. He's like 195 each of the last two years. Yeah, right. And so, um, well, this is one of the things we talk about. I, I believe uh, maybe Matt Swartz had a good uh, – we've, we've discussed it on the podcast, but the difference is those gaps between what a club knows about its own player and what a second club uh, might know about that same player. Um, and so what do you think – I mean, what do you – do you have any – can you speculate on what the Angels might know about Peter Burgess or, or what we could just perhaps infer about Burgess and his health from – uh, from the time he's missed, is it? Do we think it's more fluke, or do we think it's more uh, systemic? I guess. Well, his two major injuries have been wrist problems. This last year, he missed most of the second half of the season after getting beaten in the rest of the pitch. I think you know, there's no question that health is a skill, and I think we can look at like you know Grady Sizemore, some of these guys, Franklin Gutierrez, where they're just perpetually hurt, and you know that has to factor into the evaluations, and you don't want to look at you know per 600 plate appearance metrics for these guys who can't stay on the field. Uh, you just have to accept that they're a broken shell of what they used to be. Peter Burgess is 27 and in four years has missed time primarily to, to, uh, bones breaking. To me, this is not the health as a skill argument. Like to me, health as a skill is, you know, chronically pulled hamstrings, uh, lingering foot problems, uh, you know, um, elbow issues that cause you to not be able to throw, uh, you know, things that are, um, systemic and repeatable. Getting hit with a pitch, not systemic or repeatable. I think that there's a chance that Peter Burgess could be uh, a Franklin Gutierrez type player who's consistently injured. I don't think we have enough evidence to know that though. I think I don't think the Angels traded Peter Burgess because he got hurt too much. I think the Angels traded Peter Burgess because they wanted to put Mike Trout in center field and open uh, the starting right field job for Cole Calhoun, who's a pretty good hitting prospect himself. Uh, and Burgess it was a pretty good trade chip. So if they looked at it and said, you know what, with Hamilton, Trout, and Calhoun, we've got a good outfield. Burgess doesn't necessarily fit into our picture. We we have some holes we need to fill. Burgess is the guy we should use to go fill those holes, not we don't want Peter Burgess because he's hurt too much. Right, right. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because – and I actually thought you did a, um, a good job with regard to the Fielder-Kinsler trade uh, so far as that's concerned. Uh, while that trade um, was very likely um, – because you wrote the, the Tigers piece first, right? And yeah. It made a lot of sense for the Tigers because they can move Miguel Cabrera back to first base, uh, hopefully, hopefully for the aesthetics of the game. Um, they can, uh, Kinsler's very good and they save quite a bit of money while having a player who's, you know, uh, odds on will produce about the same as Prince Fielder. Um, yeah. and, but that, just because it's, uh, a, an excellent trade for the Tigers does not necessarily mean, uh, it's a total loss for the Rangers because they have their own set of circumstances. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that we should not approach trades as zero sum, uh, a zero sum game where there's a winner and a loser and they're equally, you know, as much as to the degree that one side wins, the other side must lose proportionally. Like, that's not how trades work. I think even through history, we, we kind of understand, like, trading evolved out of surplus, right? Like, I've got too many berries and you've got too many nuts, so I'm going to trade you berries for nuts and then we're both going to have both berries and nuts and we're going to have better breakfast. Like, yeah, 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 this, yeah, is, true. this yeah. is kind of how trading has evolved throughout human time. Uh, so I think the concept of trading uh, shouldn't be viewed as a winner and a loser. There should be room for trades that make both teams better. I think this trade more clearly helps the Tigers than it does the Rangers, but it's not that there's no chance for this trade to help the Rangers. I think the the assumptions you have to make to make this trade help the Rangers are a little bit of a stretch, but there's certainly an opportunity there uh, because they had jerks and Profar, because they couldn't use Ian Kindler to his maximum benefit, uh, because, you know, maybe Prince Fielder will get a, a larger benefit from moving to Texas where left-handed pull power is more rewarded than it is in Detroit, uh, I think you can make a case that, you know, this is a, the kind of deal that could eventually help the Rangers. Um, it's it's a much easier case to show how this trade is going to help the, the Tigers, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the, the Rangers got screwed. Okay, all right. Well, I just want to make it clear. We had been talking about the, um, the Angels-Cardinals trade. I think we could be done talking about that. Um, Except to acknowledge, probably, well, who, uh, who's going to play the outfield for the for the Cardinals in 2014? Well, I think we know now, right? I think uh, you're going to Matt Holiday and left. <coughs> Excuse me, and uh, then probably a rotating cast of characters in center and right. So they've still got John Jay, who uh, you know is a league average hitter, maybe slightly above, who's not a terrible defensive outfielder, a little mismatched in center probably, but, you know, um, good enough to play a corner spot. Doesn't have a great arm. So moving him to right field, uh, maybe not the best idea given his weak throwing arm, but, you know, Cardinals have done stranger things before, uh, like playing Pete Cosman, David De- Daniel Descalso at shortstop in a World Series run. So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't completely rule out John Jay getting time in right field even with his weak throwing arm. Uh, they also have Alan Craig, who's been potentially talked about moving it back to the outfield to make room for Matt Adams. Uh, but Craig's been injury prone himself. Uh, Adams needs a platoon partner, so neither of them are likely full-time everyday players. And then they've got Oscar Tavares hanging out in the minor leagues, who, you know, probably profiles better as a right fielder. Probably the right fielder of the future may not be ready for the big leagues in 2014, at least not to start. Uh, so I think, you know, with Burgess and Jay and Craig and Adams, they've got a nice little, uh, four guys for three spots job share that they can run until Tavares shows up, takes the right field job, and then they have to pick and choose. So, uh, there's also, you know, just the chance that they could make some trades and maybe John Jay gets shipped out and just becomes the everyday center fielder. But, you know, we talked about his health issues. It's not a terrible idea to have, you know, a left-handed compliment who's more bat than glove, uh, who can play if Jay or if, if Burgess needs some time off. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And it, it should be noted, I suppose, and it's very possible that the listener is aware of this, but, uh, Oscar Tavares missed quite a bit of time this year. <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, the dog is in agreement with Oscar yeah. Tavares. <laughs> and so that probably uh, pushed back his, uh, his you know, timetable for promotion to the major leagues a little bit, despite the fact that uh, I think he's probably still well regarded as, a, as an offensive prospect. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, given that Tavares missed most of 2013, there are some concerns about his personality or his uh, makeup, as you might call it, uh, and the fact that he didn't hit all that well in AAA, I don't think there's any reason to rush him. I mean, right. this is a guy that you could easily justify giving a couple months to in AAA, and if he, you know, tears the cover off the ball, then you make room for him. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of a win-win there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that, yeah, that's good for that trade. Now we'll move. We'll do briefly the Kinsler Fielder. Um, as I said, you 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 made this sort of nuanced point that, uh, and, and you've reiterated here, that's not a zero-sum game. Uh, it's it's it, that that being said, it, it helps that the Tigers spent um, most of 2013 being what one of the top three teams in the in the majors. And, uh, yeah, I think that's fair to say. And it's uh, with this move, obviously you you can't say all the performances are going to be the same, but th- there can only be optimism when you have an excellent team and you essentially switch out, you make a couple moves that make your team, I, I guess, that even if this sort of same amount of talent is preserved, th- th- those pieces are deployed perhaps um, in more fitting ways. And now yep. you have more money as well. That that can't. I mean, that has to be good for a club. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, Tigers fans who looked at this and said, "Kinsler sucks. He's on the downside of his career. His power's declining. He doesn't hit well out of Texas. Fielder's an elite slugger. We just traded a good player for a bad player." Are completely missing the picture because I think you can make an argument that Prince Fielder maybe is still a better player than Ian Kinsler. I don't know that I buy it, but you can make one if if you don't buy into uh, you know Ian Kinsler uh, as a as a hitter in part because of his home road splits and you think that, you know, the, the early decline phase of 20 year olds who are of a second baseman who, uh, you know, were speeding defense, uh, value you guys in their twenties and, and look at how they do in their thirties. Maybe Kinsler really is headed for a cliff. And I think you can make a case that, uh, you know, Fielder's a better player than Kinsler, but the money difference is just so dramatic. $76 million, even if it's not all up front, uh, is a huge amount of savings. And I, I struggle to see anyone who would say, you know, I would rather have Prince Fielder than Ian Kinsler and Curtis Granderson and Joe Nathan, or uh, Ian Kinsler and most of what can get me Shin Chu, or Ian Kinsler and Carlos Beltran and, you know, $40 million left for something else to upgrade the bullpen or to, you know, find a third baseman. Or, you know, I mean, if you can land uh, Kinsler and, you know, Juan Uribe as an excellent defensive third baseman and then you still have money left for an outfielder and a closer, I mean, like, this combination of talent, is so far and ahead of better than Fielder and, you know, three league minimum guys or, or Fielder and a, a few cheap pickups that you can get on the waiver wire. Um, you know, the, the gap between Fielder and Kinsler, even if you think Fielder is better, in no way justifies $76 million difference, uh, from the Tigers perspective. They can easily go respend that money and come out way, way ahead. What do you think are the odds, uh, just looking here at the, the projection for Nick Castellanos, uh, this sort of, uh, well thought of, Prospect for the Tigers. He was 21 this year, uh, played uh, all of the season, in fact, uh, except for uh, the end of the year, um, at AAA as a 21-year-old, which is promising of itself, and he was not overmatched at uh, AAA. He he has been a third-base prospect. Uh, he had switched to the outfield, but uh, it, there's there have been reports that he will be uh, switching back to third base. Uh, uh, I mean, he could be uh, – pres- his presence – Seems like it could be quite valuable. Maybe the Tigers get signed someone on a one-year contract in in uh, to sort of challenge Castellanos, or is you know as sort of like a basic insurance. But Castellanos seems like he could very possibly be a league average player f- for that club. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, but I think it depends on your evaluation of his defense at third base. Like you know, if you think he was moved off third base because they had Miguel Cabrera and they shifted him over and they didn't want to block their top hitting prospect. Uh, then you could think, okay, maybe Castellanos can go back to third and, and be a, you know, an average fielder there, or at least not a terrible fielder there. Uh, 
uh, and, you know, provide some offensive uh, production for the league minimum. If you think, as some people do, that Castellanos was moved to the outfield because he can't hack it at third base, then moving him back to third just because it's open might not be a realistic uh, expectation. So uh, I think, you know, it's hard to know exactly what to expect from Castellanos as a defender at third base, especially because he hasn't done it in a year and a half. I mean, there's going to be some uh, lost development time there where he, he wouldn't have improved as we would expect a normal 21-year-old to improve because he's been playing the outfield the last couple of years. So, uh, you know, I don't know that I would pencil him in as the everyday player at third base if I'm the Tigers. I think I probably would uh, go get a, a veteran like a Uribe who could, you know, maybe not be an everyday player but could give you most of the playing time at third base and you could kind of use Castellanos at third and you could use him in the outfield and kind of see what you got. I mean, I don't think there's any harm in having him play both positions next year evaluating him at the major league level, give him 400 or 500 at-bats between the two spots and figure out if he can hack it as your everyday third baseman. If he can, that's awesome. If he can't, that's okay. I mean, you've still got some outfield depth and you've got a pinch hitter and uh, you've got a, you know, a guy who can play uh, fairly regularly, but given you know the fact that Tony Hunter is 38 uh, and you know they still don't have a full-time left fielder, they'll probably go get one. But you know, even if they sign Chin Su Chu, he needs a platoon partner. Uh, so I think you know there's room for Castellanos to play even if he's not the starting third baseman for the Tigers. One has to assume that even if we do install, uh, hypothetically, Castellanos at, at third, having uh, Iglesias at short, um, Kinsler at second, and then Cabrera moved back across the diamond, that, uh, <laughs> if you were to guess, how many how many runs more over the course of the season would you say that, that uh, infield defense is worth than the one that uh, was uh, deployed for the most part this past year in Detroit? I mean, it's going to be better. There's no question. I think the magnitude of the improvement might be a little bit overstated uh, because, you know, for one, Kinsler is probably getting worse defensively. Uh, he graded out a little below average last year. Uh, I think it's hard to make a case that Kinsler is going to be a defensive upgrade over Omar Infante, who's a pretty good defensive player himself. So I think, you know, at second base, it's probably a wash. At shortstop, Johnny Peralta has graded out as a pretty good defensive shortstop for a while now by, based on the metrics. He's not uh, Jose Iglesias, but at the same time, they had Jose Iglesias for the final two months of the season. So you're replacing half a season of Johnny Peralta, or a little less than that because he gets suspended for 50 games, uh, with uh, you know a superlative defensive shortstop. There's an upgrade there, but it's not going from a, a statue to a, to a wizard. Uh, it's you know going from half a season of a guy who grades out pretty well uh, and half a season of that wizard to a full season of the wizard. So, you know, it's an upgrade, maybe 10 runs or something, but I think that's as, probably as much as you can push at shortstop. The big upgrade is going to be at the corners, getting Prince Fielder off the field, getting Cabrera off third base. Uh, you know, I think you could potentially see a 15-20 run swing there, uh, depending on who they bring in to play third base. But I don't think we're going to see, you know, the Tigers as one of the best infield defenses in baseball next year. They're still playing Cabrera uh, on the field. If Castellanos plays third, he's probably not going to be a defensive asset, and can lose could be worse than Infante, most likely. Oh, okay. All right. So maybe it's a, a greater apparent upchange than actual upchange. Yeah, I mean, I think it will. they'll be less embarrassing with Cabrera not at third and Fielder not at first. But I think in terms of overall runs saved, uh, you know, the, the upgrade isn't going to be that dramatic because, the you know, Iglesias over Peralta is not a huge upgrade. Kinsler over Infante is probably not an upgrade at all. Uh uh, we have a, there are a bunch more acquisitions. Um, so, no know, kidding. Some of them very interesting. But one of, one thing I was curious about, and and um, I'd like to get your take on it, is um, so uh, Chris Young, the outfielder, yeah, was um, signed uh, was signed for seven million dollars for just one yeah. year. Uh-huh. Uh, um, he's had um, he has an interesting skill set insofar as uh, he swings and misses a lot. Yep. Um, but actually, if you if you look at his projections and also what he's done, he's almost exactly an average player. Yeah. 
uh, he's, he's projected, I think, to be ex- almost exactly average offensively, uh, yeah. given his performance, the fact that he plays center field. Uh, and, you know, maybe, uh, maybe the projections on him there are a little bit muted now just because, um, oh, he hasn't played a ton, I guess. He could, well, he, he's had uh, under 400 plate appearances, I guess, the last couple of years. At any point, uh, anyway, he's, uh, like exactly average offensively, uh, and maybe exactly average defensively at this point. Um, yeah, I think that's probably a fair, I mean, I think the question is, uh, how much you put, emphasize his platoon splits. Like, Chris Young, overall, over 600 plate appearances, is probably something like an average player. Uh, there's a question, though. If you buy into his platoon splits at 100%, and you think these are indicative of his true talent levels going forward, you shouldn't do that. But if you do, uh, then you think Chris Young is a platoon player. And he's only a guy who should get 200 plate appearances per year. And he's excellent against lefties and replacement level against righties. And why would you spend $7 million on a guy who should only play twice a week? Uh, I think that's a, a large percentage of the negative thought process about Chris Young stems from that belief that Chris Young should only play against lefties, he's useless against righties, and any, uh, you know, positioning of him as a full-time player is a misuse of his skills. I think, you know, history suggests that platoon splits aren't that predictive, uh, at least not nearly as predictive as people believe. Uh, Chris Young, his, you know, defense and base running still make him a competent player against right-handers, and there's nothing wrong with having a, you know, a, a guy who's a below average player against righties and a above average player against lefties, you need some of those in the lineup. And there aren't that many guys in baseball who can be, you know, above average players against both. And certainly guys who are above average players against both righties and lefties aren't signing for $7 million on one year deals. Right, yeah. And so I was, I guess I was a little bit surprised when, um, I saw, just because I feel like he's a decent player. He's a decent piece. And the fact that it only cost the Mets, uh, $7 million, there seemed to be quite a bit of negative reaction to it. But maybe that's just because, th- uh, f- fans are always upset when their, their team does something. I don't know. Uh, yeah, but I think Mets fans have been conditioned to be negative. Uh, you know, their ownership situation is obviously terrible. Their, their team has not been good in recent years. Uh, you know, I think we joked around about this, uh, last week, but, you know, I was asking Bill Petty and some of the other Mets fans on staff, like, why are Mets fans so crazy? Like, this is a pretty good deal. Ryan Ludwig uh, got 215 for basically the same skill set with worst defense last year. Cody Ross got 326. Johnny Gomes got 210. Like, the established market price of lefty sluggers, even if you think that's what Chris Young is, uh, or righty sluggers who hit lefties, I guess, uh, you know, these platoon outfielders, uh, you know, it's higher than what Young got. He got a one-year deal, uh, so they didn't have to guarantee him multiple years. Uh, you don't need Chris Young to be a full-time player to justify this contract. Why the outrage? And I think the concept was, or the response was, uh, they're tired of their owners, uh, being cheap and not spending any money because they're in New York and they should have a, you know, $180 million payroll, but they have an $80 million payroll and they're tired of it. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, they're probably still not going to be excellent in 2014, we assume. Probably not. I think, you know, the the sad part of it is, is there's probably a little bit of a forest from a trees missing thing here. It's like perhaps the Mets fans see this as more evidence of, you know, the team being cheap and, you know, what they really wanted is big splashes. They want Shinsu Chu and they want Nelson Cruz and they want Jacoby Ellsbury and they want, you know, all these pieces to really improve the team. Uh, when in reality, Chris Young is going to give you 90% of what those guys are going to give you for 10% of the cost. And, you know, maybe to a Mets fan who thinks that the team should be spending $100 million more than they are, uh, good value signings are not the end, are not kind of the goal and you just rather have good players. But I think the signings like Chris Young allow you to still acquire good players. But, uh, I think the perspective from Mets fans is that this was 
a move instead of acquiring a superstar and I think the focus on uh, the top few players on the roster and maximizing their value has led people to criticize good value signings because they're not big splashy moves. Yeah. Well, so I know that you uh, you you have frequently said that um, you you don't like you don't care for any team, um, or maybe that's that's too strong. You don't care necessarily for a team that gives up on its season before the season begins. Uh, I mean, I think in some cases, like the Astros last year, should have given up, and they rightfully did. (laughs) (laughs) There are cases where. You can just realistically look at your talent base and say, we're not going to win this year. We're going to focus on the future. I think most teams are not at that position to where they should lose on purpose or not try and give themselves a chance to be competitive and have things fall their way if they can do so without harming their future. I do not think that every team should be out there trading prospects for veterans and signing long-term deals. Uh, I think there's absolutely times and places for those kind of moves, and if you're a 75-win team, you probably shouldn't be doing that. Uh, but, you know, if you're a 75 win team and you can sign, you know, valuable veterans who can, you know, improve your team in the short term and don't have any long term cost and push you to 80 or 82 wins, you should absolutely do that because an 82 win team can fluke its way in 92 and then all of a sudden you're in the playoffs. Right. Yeah. So, is, so is that your, uh, well, it, obviously each division in both of the leagues, the, the thresholds are different, but do you have a, a sort of a, uh, um, a rule of thumb so far as uh, the, the the threshold at which a team ought to or ought not to go for it? I mean, I think it depends on how you define go for it, right? Like, I think if you are if you project out as an 85-win team or better next year, you should absolutely be making moves to upgrade your present, even at the cost of your future. So if you can push from 85 to 88 or 85 to 90 wins, uh, and it costs you some prospects or you have to take on some bad long-term years, in order to get a good free agent in the short term, you should make that move because the value of getting wins 86, 87, 88, 89, those are huge wins that push your playoff rods way, way up. Under 85, you should be a little more conservative. And that 75 to 85 window, uh, those are, that's probably the spot where you want to be making kind of smart value additions that don't have a long-term effect on your franchise. Improve where you can, but, you know, kind of hoard your young players uh, hope to build for the next year and, you know, take advantage of a, of a strike if it, if it happens. Uh, but you don't want to punt the future for, you know, win number 77 or win number 83. Below 75, if you project out as like a 72 win team, you should probably be building for next year. Right. Well, where, where do the Royals fall on this particular spectrum? Uh, last year or this year? Uh, going into next year, I should say. I think right now, I mean, the, the Royals look like a pretty decent team. I'd put them in that 85 win range. Uh, and so I think, you know, there's no question the Royals should be making moves to upgrade themselves. Uh, you know, like the Jason Vargas deal, I think is a good example of this. Like they needed a starting pitcher. The starting pitchers are not free. Uh, they don't have a lot of money. So they gave Jason Vargas a fourth year instead of giving him a higher annual average value so that they could potentially uh, fit him into their budget and and not have to go cheap at the back end of their rotation. So they're buying basically a league average starter for a below league average price in terms of salary by giving him uh, 2017 money that he almost certainly won't be worth. So they borrowed from their 2017 budget in order to make their 2014 better. Uh, it's not a, you know, $8 million in 2017 is not going to kill them. This is the kind of move that I think is justifiable for a team in their place. Wait, who's, who plays right field for them now? Do they David. Have a right- David Luff or David Lowe, I don't know how you pronounce his name. That's the right fielder. Yeah. Hmm. How is David Lowe or Luff doing? Uh, he actually did pretty good last year. Okay. You seem, uh, I don't know, relatively optimistic about about that club. 
I mean, I think, you know, if you look at the Royals and uh, what they have, I think that they're not a terrible team. I think that they're better than they were last year. Uh, you've got probably more faith in Eric Cosmer going into 2014 than you did going into 2013. Uh, probably the same is true with, like, Lorenzo Cain. Uh, you know, I think that there's, you know, there are reasons to think that the Royals could be decent in 2014. I think if the, you know, obviously we were very critical of their offseason last year. I think if the Royals had the offseason they had last year, this year, to where they had retained Will Myers or, or, you know, kind of kept growing with the team. And then this year they had, you know, say they traded away Jordan Verdura, who's now their top prospect, and they said, we're really going to go for it now because we think we're one player away. I think the reaction would be much more muted because they look like they might actually be one good player away from being a serious contender in the AL Central. Uh, the problem is they already traded Will Myers, so they don't have the chips that they had, and they now are counting on Jordano Ventura to be one of their starting pitchers because they uh, don't have enough money to fill out their budget because they're paying guys like Jeremy Guthrie a lot of money. Uh, so I think, you know, unfortunately for the Royals, they're an 85-win team that's difficult to upgrade because they're out of money. Um, so, you know, I still think, r- realistically, the Royals would have been better off not making the James Fields trade last year. But right now, I think, you know, they should continue to go for it. Okay. Uh, now we're at about the thirty-minute mark. There's still like a hundred, you know, not a hundred, but yeah. there's ten, like five to so ten many other transactions. Moves. Yeah, it's right. Awful. That we could theoretically Jeez, talk it about. Off. Leave me alone. It's Thanksgiving <laughs> week. I want to enjoy some time with my family. What uh, if there's if we've missed one? I don't know. I can I tell you, I don't want to talk about the Brian McCann deal. Why is that? Because you don't like the fun police. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Partly. I don't know. It uh, he made quite a bit of money. I think the uh, the crowd had him projected for like four sixty or something like that. Yeah, the crowd was too, too low. I mean, I think when I put out my free agent bargains piece, I focused on the McCann as the best bargain because the the, the four sixty price was just absurdly too low. That was one that I think the fans just whiffed on. Uh, that you know, I think McCann. I projected McCann to sign for like six ninety or something like that. He got five eighty five with a vesting option. So I don't think it was that hard to know that the fans just under underestimated what McCann was going to get this winter. Overall, I think they did a really good job, but McCann was just a miss. You know, I, I was reviewing last year's numbers, and there was generally, you know, it's pretty accurate actually. But generally speaking, if the fans missed, you know. If there was a pattern, it's that fans were, were conservative with the free agents who were likely to get the most money. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is just the structure, right? Like, it's hard to miss big on a guy who signs a one-year deal or even a two-year deal. I mean, if you're guessing, like, 1-8 versus 2-17, like, you know, your total air the bar there is, like, $9 million. Or if you're guessing, you know, 4-60 versus 5-90, now your air bar is... Yeah, thirty million dollars. So, I mean, it's easier to miss big on when you're when you're talking larger numbers. Uh, but I do think that fans have been generally too conservative with the top end salaries. I think Ellsbury is going to get more than they projected. Chu's going to get more than they projected. Uh, you know, Pence certainly got more than anyone projected. I mean, I think these guys uh, are going to you know re- reap the rewards of being good players when it seems like the crowd was very risk averse at the top end. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you're done here. It's there's too many more to talk about. Uh, yeah. Um, all right, you're done. Um, we'll do it again next week, I guess. Uh, yes, we will. Yeah, we will. Yeah, hopefully there will be less to talk about. Yeah, please God, let there be less. Yeah, that's right. I don't know if God answers those kind of prayers necessarily. Uh, I think He does. I think He likes. <laughs> There's going to be less baseball this week because God likes me. But right in stone. All right. Uh, well, thank you very much, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs, um, and his dog, Liberty. Barking in the background. I'm Carson Sestouli. He's sleeping now. That's been Fangraphs Audio.